This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And I wanted to let you know that we're partnering with the History Channel this fall to help with their launch of their new show, History's Greatest Mysteries, which premieres Saturday, November 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern with the final hunt for D.B. Cooper. The History Channel and 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries share a lot of common interests with regard to mysteries we're trying to solve and they contacted us to see if we would like to get interview time with some of their episode hosts, to which we said, you bet, and how soon? Coming up is our exclusive interview with Eric Eulis, a top D.B. Cooper investigator who has found new evidence and is providing a new perspective to finding out who the mysterious D.B. Cooper really is. Before we begin, a little backstory for those of you who have never heard of D.B. Cooper. On November 24, 1971, a man calling himself Dan Cooper boarded Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 in Portland, bound for Seattle, wearing a dark suit and a black tie. While in the air, he opened his briefcase showing a bomb to the flight attendant and hijacked the plane. The plane landed in Seattle, where he demanded $200,000 in cash, four parachutes, and food for the crew before releasing all the passengers. With only three pilots and one flight attendant left on board, they took off from Seattle, heading south. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper donned the parachute, tied the bank bag full of $20 bills to himself, lowered the rear stairs, and somewhere north of Portland, jumped into the night, never to be seen again. Although the FBI followed thousands of leads, this case has never been solved. As we approach the 49th anniversary, the mystery surrounding the whereabouts of Cooper has captivated a nation and continued to remain a pop culture obsession inspiring songs, movies, TV shows, and books. With over 7,500 hours investigating this mystery, including analyzing evidence, interviewing witnesses, reading 20,000 pages of FBI case files, and exploring important locations, top D.B. Cooper expert Eric Eulis believes he's found the true location where Cooper landed during his daring dive. In the final hunt for D.B. Cooper, he and his assembled team of specialists will head to the untouched Washington backcountry to hunt for missing evidence Cooper may have left behind. In addition, armed with new leads regarding the identity of Cooper, Eric works closely with a retired FBI agent as they set their sights on a living person of interest who could very well be the infamous D.B. Cooper. Um, today we have a very special guest with us, Eric Eulis, who has devoted a big chunk of his life to solving the mystery of the identity of D.B. Cooper. Eric, it's great to have you with us today. Well, it's great to be here. I appreciate it, John. First question, and I guess the most obvious question to ask is, what got you started 
with the what got you swirling uh, along with the TB Cooper vortex? You know, I've been asked that question a lot. <laughs> Imagine it's it's difficult to put a finger on it, but I think what it was, frankly, is I've always been an aviation buff, big fan of aviation. Wanted to be a pilot when I was a was a, was a child, and uh, to the best of my recollection, I recall hearing about the case the first time, probably in the late seventies. Uh, there were a couple of shows on TV related to the mystery of D.B. Cooper, as I recall, in the late 70s. And I think that's probably what piqued my curiosity to begin with, primarily because it has the aviation element to it and, of course, the grand mystery of it all. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, uh, in 1980 itself, some of the money was found, which, of course, adds just that much more to the mystery. But I think that's where it all began. I've already explained the backstory to our listeners, but this might be a good point for you to explain the story about the money that they found. Uh, sure. Just the one real clue outside of the few things that he left on the plane that we have. So I was hoping you could kind of uh, get everybody up to date on that. I tell you what, that's that's one of the most intriguing and the most uh, one of the most fascinating parts of this whole mystery relates to the money, and of course, you know Cooper jumped out of the jet with $200,000, all of it in $20 bills. And the FBI has an area, they had a search area that they figured was roughly where the guy landed. And about eight years after the skyjacking took place, in fact, 3,000 days to the day, precisely 3,000 days later on February 10th, 1980, there was a family uh, out having a picnic on the shores of the Columbia River at a place called Tina Bar in Vancouver, Washington. And they happened to find just underneath the surface of the sand, they happened to discover three packets, three rotted packets or three packets of rotting $20 bills uh, neatly placed right next to each other, or stacked next to each other uh, with the apparent original rubber band still intact. That said, when they first picked up this rotted money, the rubber bands immediately crumbled to the touch. What they discovered very shortly thereafter was that that three packets, those three packets of $20 bills represented nearly $5,800 of D.B. Cooper's ransom. Just sitting there, buried just below the surface of the sand, three packets by themselves, about 50 feet from the water's edge, and at, a, at an elevation, you know, several feet above the, the water level of the of the Columbia River. So in just kind of an odd spot, what makes it the most fascinating is that it's no, it's it's not, it's location, Tina Bar, is not related to the search area in any way whatsoever. In other words, it's not as simple as saying Cooper landed in the Lewis River, roughly where the FBI thinks he did, and all this stuff just got swept down the river and ultimately into the Columbia River and Tina Bar. And the reason why is because the Lewis River, which is the only river in that area where they think he jumped, does feed into the Columbia River, but it's about eight miles downstream from Tina Bar. Needless to say, if the packets ended up in the Lewis River and ultimately in the money ended up in the Lewis River and ultimately in the Columbia River, it's impossible. It's a physical impossibility to then swim eight miles upstream, right. you know, mm -hmm. walk up the beach 50 feet and then bury itself for eight years. So that's a very big mystery 
and one of the very few clues that we have with respect to this case outside of the jet, outside of what was left on board the jet. But uh, do you think that money was DB Cooper's money? Was it in a separate bag? Was it was it buried in a bag, or was it just buried in stacks of bills? What they what they found were just these three packets by themselves, just below the surface of the uh, just below the surface. Now it's important to note that Tina Bar, where the money was found, has undergone a significant amount of erosion. So what it appears what appears to have happened is that the money was placed there eight years earlier at the time of the skyjacking. And, and at that point, it was probably a foot or so deep, foot or 18 inches deep. Mm-hmm. But then over the intervening years, the Columbia River, just through the process of erosion, uh, the, the Columbia, the sand along the Columbia River, I should say, the Tina Bar, just through the process of erosion, just got down to a low, low enough level where it effectively exposed these three packets. We have no idea where the rest of the money is. There was no bag found it or with it or anything of that nature. Just these three packets sitting by themselves. Uh, and that's, again, a very big mystery, but I think it tells us an awful lot about the story and what ultimately happened. What I thought was fascinating, I'm not going to give away any of the details of the show, but I think I can safely say that uh, you felt that the actual flight path was different than the flight path that the FBI investigated. I'll tell you something, John. Um, from the very beginning, I've approached this from the perspective of uh, sort of a no-nonsense type of investigation. I mean, I'm, I'm just, that, that's, you know, I'm, I'm very big into math. I'm very big into science. I'm very big into analysis. And there are a few pieces of evidence out there. And, of course, the money is a big part of it. And so from my perspective, I just looked at the evidence and let the evidence speak to me. What does that tell me? And what I recognized or came to conclude very shortly thereafter was that the FBI's version of the flight path, which is not set in stone, the FBI itself isn't absolutely certain about that. But what that told me is that it, it just had to be wrong. It, it's just, it just had to be wrong. It just didn't make any sense. Uh, the, the facts just don't support it. The facts as we know it. I mean, we know for sure where the money was found. So... Uh, as well as some other things. So that got me uh, considering a few other things. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that, uh, that indeed the FBI's version of the flight path and where he jumped was, was askew, uh, to the tune of a, a few miles, not a significant amount, but far enough. And, uh, that when you uh, factor in the evidence and, and this, what I refer to as the Western flight path, which I believe is the actual flight path and the precise flight path, then, then other things, other pieces of the, 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 the puzzle start to fall into place, not the least of which is this money and explaining how this money ended up on Tina Bar. I thought it was pretty cool. You got a chance to interview the actual flight controller uh, who was uh, on the job that night, and he confirmed the fact that the measurements that they had to work with are not exact. It, it did not That's pinpoint perfect. that location. All the plane knew was when there was a slight bump, a pressure bump, that indicated that Cooper had jumped off the steps that he had actually lowered. Uh, That's correct. That's and, correct. It, it, and interestingly enough, the uh, the air traffic controller, you're referring to a gentleman named Cliff Ammerman, uh, who, again, was the air traffic controller that dealt with uh, Flight 305 as it headed south, and importantly, was who was actually controlling the jet 
out of air traffic control in the metropolitan Seattle area at the time Cooper jumped. But he also dealt with the chase planes. There were two F-106 fighter jets from the Port Air Force Base that he uh, dealt with, that he essentially uh, uh, managed, as well as another T-33 Oregon Air National Guard uh, jet that came up from uh, PDX from Portland International. So uh, I, thought, I thought it was very important to talk with him to sort of understand the totality of what he recalls that night. And putting all these things together, I think, tells a tells an interesting story and uh, amazingly was never interviewed by the FBI or any other law enforcement. Wow. Shocked. It was fascinating. One of the things I enjoyed about it was the amount of people you were able to pull together for the search you had and the restrictions that were put on that uh, search uh, with regard to how many days you had, where you could go, what you could do. Could you kind of describe that experience a little bit? Sure. And I'm going to be very careful and diplomatic about it because, you know, we had, you know, part of what afforded us the opportunity to search where we searched involved making some commitments with respect to being discreet, uh, with respect to where this took place. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, factoring in what I consider to be the true and accurate flight path of flight 305, uh, which was the hijacked airliner again flying along this western, western flight path and considering the jump time, which we've, we can safely peg at approximately 8.12 p.m. That's a, right, right around 8.12 p.m. exactly. Uh, I noticed something very interesting that if Cooper had indeed jumped at that point and at that, you know, along the western flight path, that where he would have landed, uh, would have put him in federally restricted, uh, on federally restricted land. Which, uh, explains a lot because you would think that, you know, if he landed in the area and didn't survive, there'd be a corpse laying around with a bag of money and parachutes and all that kind of stuff. Conversely, if he did survive, it's very difficult to him to imagine him walking back to civilization, toting around 35 pounds worth of parachutes that he, that he no longer needs, whatever. He would have stashed that somewhere. But none of that stuff has ever been found. So it stands to reason that it's out there somewhere. It's somewhere to be found. And trying to explain how it is that after nearly 50 years, none of this stuff has ever been found is very problematic for most people. But it becomes much more intriguing when you realize that if he landed in this federally restricted area, which is off limits to people, uh, all of a sudden it begins to make sense. If you have no foot traffic in that area, people are not allowed, well, then it makes perfect sense. And it's just a matter of just serendipity, quite frankly, on D.B. Cooper's part that he would have happened to have landed in this area. So, yes, we managed to uh, work with the authorities to gain uh, special access uh, to this area for uh, three days uh, to effectuate a search. We had a very, very limited number of people we could take with us. Uh, we had very severe restrictions on us with respect to actually digging. We couldn't dig up anything you know, out of the ground, underground. Uh, and there's some other things that we needed to be sensitive about, which we were. We had to have a uh, an archaeologist accompany, accompany us on this. Uh, so it was, you know, we, we were, you know, we had a couple of things going on here. We obviously wanted access to the area we wanted to search because we felt like this is a, a prime search area for D.B. Cooper. But 
you know, hey, you know, we're not out to destroy anything. We, we want to be culturally sensitive to the area, uh, to, to the peoples that live there in the past and, and these types of things. So, you know, we were, we were more than willing to play ball and, and do things the right way. So we're very grateful for the opportunity to partner with, uh, this particular, uh, uh, department of the federal government uh, to actually gain access for three days to actually effectuate a search. Now you you had to cover thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, of documents with regard to this investigation before you could really put together a game plan. Did you file the FOIs yourself, and what was the process on getting information back? Uh, I was not the person that originally filed the uh, Freedom of Information Act. Uh, this was somebody else that did that, and uh, ultimately... Uh, what that led to was the release of what at this point is about 20,000 pages of FBI files dating back to the skyjacking itself, 1971. In fact, they're released effectively in chronological order there. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're dealing with something over 20,000 pages of, of FBI files. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is heavily redacted and, and is of little use. That said, there are things that are actually critically important. I have read through those files uh, many times, and it's been uh, of significant importance. And and taking into account what the authorities did uh, from 1971 on has been very helpful. It gives me an idea of what exactly they, you know, what evidence they had, you know, what kind of decisions they need to needed to, to uh, things they needed to consider, and so forth. One other critically important thing here, I had a I had a leg up. I had a leg up on the authorities. A couple legs up. One of which is that I know that it's 48, 49 years later and nothing had been found. So the fact that nothing had been found told me a lot. Of course, this is information that they didn't have. So, uh, you know, and there were some other things that have been discovered in, in, uh, in recent years as well with respect to E.D. Cooper's tying some additional evidence. Plus, there was a piece of a placard that was found in 1978. Again, this is, a you know, there's a, so there's a lot of little pieces that, that I'm aware of now that these folks, the law enforcement, wasn't aware of uh, at the time of the skyjacking or shortly thereafter. We'll return to our interview right after these sponsor messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to our show. The FBI interviewed over, I think, a thousand different suspects, or at least they looked at them. I don't think they interviewed them all, but they certainly looked at them. You pretty much narrowed it down to one. And I know that a lot of the people who have been involved in this mystery, from regular armchair historians to just curious people who would love to see this, who would love to be able to take part in solving this yet unsolved mystery, have narrowed it down to just a few. Can you can you share with our listeners how you narrowed down this one suspect? What made him look good? Sure, and this is critically important. When I first started looking at this case, I decided to implement a plan. Implement a plan how I was going to investigate the case, and really the first 
piece of that plan was to, to the best of my ability, identify the facts as we knew them at that point. And of course, I also had the, the benefit of factoring in newer evidence and things that had been discovered in later years. So that was the first part, you know, try to identify the facts to the best of my ability, read the 302s, the FBI 302s, get witness statements, things of this nature, and try to come up with a clear understanding of what precisely happened and what D.B. Cooper said and what D.B. Cooper ordered and, and, and what transpired. And the second really piece of my investigation uh, involved coming up with a suspect profile. And there were things that that I, I could assume, reasonably assume about this man, D.B. Cooper, based upon what I knew and, and the fact that the person had never been found. And I felt that that was important to, to utilize all this information to establish a, a suspect profile, not only just the physical characteristics and so forth, but just you know, some other things. Like, for example, I, I was pretty sure that this guy had a Boeing connection based upon his knowledge about the 727. Pretty, pretty sure he was familiar with the Seattle region. I knew that he had been exposed to commercially pure titanium and high-grade stainless steel and aluminum back in the early 70s. The titanium in particular was, was very unusual. Also, I knew that the guy had never been caught, which told me that, you know, he didn't strike me as the kind of guy who's going to skyjack a jet, store 200 grand, and then go brag about it with his buddies at the bar. Mm-hmm. This guy was very tight-lipped. And I factored in other things, the economic conditions of the Pacific Northwest Seattle, in particular at that time, Boeing specifically at that time, and ultimately came to the conclusion that D.B. Cooper, a guy in his mid-40s at the time skyjacking took place, by all accounts, um, probably wasn't a career criminal. It was probably just some guy who got jammed up financially, and for whatever reason, he saw this as his only way out. And uh, so I knew it took a special kind of person to be D.B. Cooper. Then, very importantly, the final piece of my investigation as far as trying to identify a suspect uh, yes, you are right. The FBI actually looked into well over a thousand suspects. And I was convinced that the FBI had actually come across the real D.B. Cooper at some point during their investigation. They just didn't know it. They couldn't prove it. Again, we're familiar with, you know, those cold cases, whether it's the Green River Killer or, you know, people like that in California that end up getting outed primarily through DNA and so forth, enhancements in DNA testing, only to find out that the suspect was actually on law enforcement's radar all along for 30 or 40 years. And I was pretty sure that that was the case with with this D.B. Cooper situation. So as I started going through the, the list of suspects, and again, the information is heavily redacted, so there weren't names, generally speaking, that I could work with, but there was other identifying information. I was looking for a very specific person, type of person in mind, fit this, this profile. And eventually I came across somebody that was very intriguing. And, and I'm just like, this, this guy is very compelling. Uh, he's either D.B. Cooper or he's the unluckiest guy in the world, I used to say. <laughs> uh, but he was, you know, definitely a person of interest uh, on the part of the FBI. Uh, and amazingly discovered that the guy was actually still alive. 
And that afforded me the opportunity to uh, pick up the phone and give the guy a call and, and uh, sort of get to know him at a certain level. But uh, yeah, that's some of the process I went through with respect to that. And, and, you know, and again, I feel, I feel very passionately about that type of approach. Uh, specifically as it pertains to uh, you know, persons of interest. Well, you really went deep uh, on this episode as it unfolds, and I know the, the viewers are going to – it's very exciting to, uh, to see to what lengths you went to uh, get information on this guy. I believe you spoke to his ex-wife. I believe you spoke to the FBI agent who originally uh, questioned him, and that, I found all that fascinating. I think uh, the viewers, uh, when this comes out uh, Saturday, November 14th, which is and and is is going to be the first of uh, of this brand new History Channel show. And to remind you viewers again, this brand new History Show is called History's Greatest Mysteries. Sounds a little bit like our podcast. Uh, we do have a lot in common with regard to some of the mysteries that we're covering here. DB Cooper left very little uh, behind him on that plane. He left some cigarette butts. I don't know if those were collected by the FBI. They weren't doing DNA during that uh, time when that happened, were they? That's correct. D.B. Cooper was obviously very careful not to leave any evidence behind on the jet. That said, he did leave some evidence behind on the jet. Specifically, he smoked uh, seven or eight cigarettes and left those cigarette butts behind. Uh, and also a clip-on tie with a... Uh, Mother of Pearl alligator tie clip that was affixed to the clip-on tie as well. Uh, you know, unfortunately for uh, investigators nowadays, like myself, uh, the cigarette butts were processed by the FBI in Quantico uh, for fingerprints, that type of thing, but then ultimately discarded. And that's I've, I've seen the files, um, paperwork in the FBI files related to that. So the, the cigarette butts were discarded. They weren't lost. They were actually thrown away, destroyed. Of course, back then, the early 1970s, there was no such thing as DNA testing or anything of that nature. So uh, that would have been a terrific opportunity for us to, to gain a, a DNA profile uh, from uh, for Cooper from those cigarette butts if they had the cigarette butts still around. But again, they've been destroyed. That said, we do. Uh, there was a clip-on tie that was left behind, and, and uh, you know, there's stuff on that clip-on tie that uh, provides some evidence for us uh, that we can uh, that we can work with. That was quite a find. You'll definitely be interested in what they do find out. They go pretty deep on what that tie did reveal. That's the thing about uh, DB Cooper here is that there's very little evidence out there, so you've just got to really dig down deep into what you've actually got to work with. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's the name of the game, man. Like, you, you got only so much to work with. Uh, but it's amazing just working with what we have, uh, what we can learn, and what we can put together. I've said this many times before that we actually, even though we don't have the, you know, the, the, all the evidence laid out and every and answers to everything with respect to the case. There is enough that we do have to solve the case and identify the real D.B. Cooper. Do you think he lived or died? Uh, I think considering the evidence that we have and pointing specifically to that money, the $5,800 that was found on Tina Barr in 1980, I think it clearly shows that there is no way that D.B. Cooper was 
killed on the night that he jumped. In other words, I am absolutely convinced that the guy survived. If he didn't survive, uh, there are a lot of things that just cannot be easily rationalized or explained. On the other hand, assuming he did survive, then all of a sudden a lot of other things become easier to rationalize and explain. For example, how three packets alone of $20 bills end up nowhere near where D.D. Cooper theoretically jumped. Why it is that nothing was ever found in terms of a corpse or something of that nature. Uh, there's a lot of that that begins to make sense if you accept the fact that D.D. Cooper did actually survive. I see him as a very desperate guy uh, who really needed that money. And the, the one real experience he had was experience with that with that exact same aircraft. Obviously, he knew how to get the, the passenger stairs down by himself uh, without assistance. But here he is. He's jumping at night and not knowing exactly what he's jumping into. It's not like he had a, a, a target area in mind. He just le- he just leapt off that those stairs uh, at a time when he felt it was right. It, it, a lot of things could have gone wrong. It could have gone wrong when they landed in Seattle. Uh, he could have been uh, he could have been arrested at that point. A lot of things could have gone wrong on that landing. He could have got hung in a tree. He could have broken his leg and been incapacitated. There's a it was a very risky, risky operation that he was putting on for $200,000. That attitude, there's not too many guys who have that kind of attitude, and that, I, I think, does narrow your suspects down as well. Well, I've said before that uh, you know, whoever D.B. Cooper was, that it took, uh, it took a certain amount of stones <laughs> to do that. I mean, it, 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 uh, that was a gutsy move on D.B. Cooper's part. $200,000 back in 1971 is the equivalent of $1.2 million today. So that's a healthy amount of money. But, you know, this is where having the opportunity to dig into the FBI files and learn about what actually transpired becomes very helpful. Because if you look at it on the surface, you think, okay, there's a guy, you know, extorts the passengers, gets $200,000. You know, four parachutes, jumps somewhere north of Vancouver, Washington, just, you know, didn't give any directions on, you know, how to fly to Reno or Mexico, just basically said fly. Uh, but at the same time gave very specific instructions to the pilots, set the flaps to 15 degrees, fly with the landing gear down, fly with the jet unpressurized, fly with the, the back air stairs in an unlocked position. I mean, there were very specific things that he ordered the pilots to do that indicate that he was very familiar with the 727. But importantly, the one thing that reading through all these files and sort of taking a view of this entire investigation from 35,000 feet up and then trying to figure out exactly what transpired, uh, I, I began to appreciate that um, the reason some of this stuff doesn't make sense is because we've, we've drawn in, incorrect conclusions. For example, people have talked at length about, you know, what would possess somebody to jump into the middle of a woods wearing, you know, a, a suit with uh, loafers, you know, with uh, $200,000 in cash strapped. I mean, the guy to be crazy was a suicide mission. And I think they're absolutely right. I don't think, but, but I don't think that was part of this plan. I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that his plan actually entailed jumping 
in the outskirts of Seattle. I believe he intended to jump very shortly after taking off from Seattle and, and flying south, but there are a couple of uh, reasons that he was delayed. And by the time he was ready to jump, Seattle was long gone, and he needed to sort of jump to the next best opportunity. And as they were approaching the met metropolitan Portland area, you could see that Corolla, an obvious city or town, and I don't know that he knew it was Portland or not, but below the, you know, through the clouds, uh, I think he took that opportunity to jump. Because at the end of the day, the guy realized that once he landed, he has to work his way back to civilization. I mean, he cannot avoid civilization. He's got to work his way back to civilization to either get shelter, get a bite to eat, rent a car, you know, catch a Greyhound bus. You know, he, he needs to enter civilization again, you know, for, for all of those reasons and more. So, uh, I think that, uh, he did, again, I think he initially intended on jumping, uh, in the outskirts of Seattle shortly after taking off, was delayed, uh, and ultimately, uh, his plan B was to, you know, find an area to jump where he was relatively assured that he was close to civilization, and, uh, ultimately north of the Portland-Vancouver area is an ideal spot. What was it like working with the History Channel? Uh, it was spectacular. Uh, the one really cool thing about working with the History Channel is it opened up doors that otherwise wouldn't have been opened. And, you know, that's one thing, or one area that's been somewhat frustrating over the years is although I've had access to a lot of people and a lot of information, uh, there's still a lot more that I would like to have had access to earlier on. Partnering with History Channel on this, uh, on this open those doors and I think it's been absolutely invaluable and I believe that the viewers will see that as they watch this show they'll they'll appreciate uh, how important it is to our investigation to bring various uh, sources together not only myself but also the resources and contacts of, of the History Channel to uh, open up doors and so forth and actually move this case forward. Well, again, congratulations to you, Eric, on this production. It was fantastic. You've done a great job with this. Good luck to you going forward. And I know our, our listeners are going to look forward to watching this episode on the History Channel Saturday, November 14th. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Wonderful. Very much. I appreciate it. by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. 
To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.